Hey, Big Biology listeners, remind you, we're in the midst of a crucial fund drive. Please remember that we're a nonprofit and we need your help to keep making the podcast you love. And to sweeten your contributions, a super fan of Big Biology is providing up to $10,000 in matching funds for the drive. Whatever you send, he'll match it, doubling your chance to support our producers, our interns, Keating's amazing cover art, and all the technical bells and whistles that go into making the show. So please consider making a donation today. There are three main ways you can support us. The first is to make a one-time donation at the website, bigbiology.org. The other way is to sign up as a patron on our Patreon site, which is at patreon.com bigbio. And the last one is the free one. Just spread the word about the show, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. If you like Big Biology, tell a friend. Thanks for listening, and here's today's show. So, Art, what's the opposite of day science? Night science. But that's two things, right? One is Francois Jacob's name for the creative dimensions of doing science. The other is an awesome new podcast hosted by Itai Yanai and Martin Lercher. Correct on both fronts. Jakob, who shared the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1965 with Jacques Monod and André Loif for genetic regulation, said of night science in his autobiography, Night science wanders blind. It hesitates, stumbles, recoils, sweats, wakes with a start. Doubting everything, it is forever trying to find itself, question itself, pull itself back together. Night science is a sort of workshop of the possible, where what will become the building material of science is worked out. Ah, beautiful stuff. I wish we saw more of that in science writing. Yeah, and our guests on today's show agree. Itai and Martin, the hosts of the Night Science Podcast, were so inspired by Jakob's message that they started a series of articles in the journal Genome Biology to talk about it. A few years into the exercise, Itai realized that a podcast might be an even greater help to their cause. And? After twisting Martin's arm, the Night Science Podcast was born. Today on Big Biology, we join with Martin and Itai to talk about our respective origin stories. And how we aspire to do more creative research and communicate science better. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And you're listening to Big Biology. Who goes first? Uh, let's do some introductions. You, you go. You I'll go. go first. Okay. So uh, my name is Itai, Itai Yanai. Let's see. I, I live in New York City and I'm originally from Israel and that's me. <laughs> I, I do. I guess I, uh, I'm a professor at NYU where we study cancer biology and also host pathogen interactions, all from the point of view of gene expression. I'm Martin, Martin Lasha or... Lurcher. I'm, I'm never quite sure how I should pronounce that when I talk in English. Right. Lurcher <laughs> is like the American pronunciation. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually in Germany, in Cologne, but I work at the University of Dusseldorf. And what we do there is mostly these days making models to understand the organization of individual cells, bacteria specifically, um, but also complete organisms and uh, specifically, we're interested in plants because that's uh, something that a lot of people around us are working on. And we think that you can really understand a lot about them by making models based on just physics and chemistry, essentially. So that's me. How did you guys come to know each other? You seem to have different expertise. I mean, what was the, what's the origin story of your relationship in podcast? Well, actually, we met a long time ago. Uh, when we were 20 years ago 20 years ago and we were both postdocs at the time i think right mm -hmm. yeah so you 
I, I, you, I think you were more advanced as a postdoc. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually had a had a fellowship that I was on, so I was independent at the European Molecular Biology Lab, Embel in Heidelberg. And I was there for a couple of years, and then Itai came for a visit to do a research project with Per Borg. And uh, yeah, we did some science together, and we enjoyed it very much. Yeah, we... That was a crazy project. We got so excited about something and we, we actually published a paper where Martin is his last author and I'm first author and a bunch of the Heidelberg crew is in the middle there. And that was our only science project, like like day science, we would call it. <laughs> well, it was the only one that was published. Oh, that's true. That, <laughs> that's true. There was a failed project there too. There was a, So after we published that paper I mentioned, we wanted to do a follow-up. And we got together for one week in Heidelberg where we were unaffiliated with anything. You know, we didn't work in any lab. We just would meet in coffee shops and, and code together. And it was great fun. Like, like, you know, we were sitting next to each other and Itai with his laptop, he was analyzing the data in MATLAB. And I, with my laptop, was analyzing the data in R. So we decided, okay, this is what we got to test now, right? And then he implemented it, I implemented it. And we compared the results, and of course, they were different <laughs> every, every time. It was always different. And then we would check, and then we would find out that we were both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was great, because at some point, we always converged on the same answer, and then we were sure, okay, this, this has to be correct now. Um, so that was cool. It was actually a really interesting way of doing it that I, I always wanted to replicate in like other projects, and I've never done. Because in, you know, in, in making sure we both got the same thing, we realized we had been making different assumptions or there were bugs. And it was actually, it, it sounds inefficient, you know, two people doing the exact same thing, but it was actually super efficient because we could do things really fast and not get hung up on bugs. Yeah, we, we got a lot done in that one week, even if it wasn't published in the end. That's super interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting because it, it kind of was our, no, actually there was a lot of what we call night signs in the first published project, right? But this one was, at least 50%, probably more night science. Like we, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we felt that we felt there was something interesting hiding in that data, right? We, we knew there was something in there. We just didn't know how to figure out what it was. And that's what we tried to do for that week. And so it was, it was great fun, even if we never figured it out in the end. I think you guys should revisit it and figure it out now, you know, with uh, 10 or 15 years of hindsight. Yeah, it's a good idea, but, but we, we wouldn't be using the same data set, I think. Uh. Uh, it was early microarray data for um, transcriptomics, so there's there's better ways now. Yes, uh, I see. The field has moved on. Well, uh, maybe Marty and I introduce ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm Art Woods. Uh, I'm a professor of biology at the University of Montana, which is in Missoula, Montana. If cool. you could see me, that literally cool. If you could see me sitting here. Uh, I've got the HVAC off in my house and it's quite cold out. So I have a, a hat and a coat on just to stay warm while we talk. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, because that would, would make too much noise. That's why. Yeah, exactly. Wow, yeah. the things we do for podcasts. I know. I know. The sacrifices. <laughs> the sacrifices. I, I do uh, insect ecophysiology mostly. I'm interested in insect plant interactions and the effects of climate change on those interactions. So it's kind of um, thinking about especially how changes in climate project into the small spaces where insects live. And weren't you doing field work a couple of months ago when we tried to schedule this? Uh, Marty has been the problematic guy for field work 
so yeah, <laughs> Mar- Marty, you introduce yourself and tell them about your around the world trip. Well, come on now. I mean, this this is coming from the guy who spent a substantial portion of last year in Australia and South Africa. So you do you do get around, man. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true, but not as much as you, oddly. Not as much. No, I I think um it's got to end. I've I've been traveling far too much. Yeah, I um I was in New Zealand and Australia until about two weeks ago, and I leave on uh, next. Saturday for um, a week in Brazil, but this is a global project. So let me do the broader thing. Um, I'm Marty Martin, a biology a biologist, but I'm actually a professor in the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida. And that's partly because my flavor of biology is half of the time disease ecology. So we do work with West Nile virus. We do work with Lyme disease, a, a lot of different things, most, mostly zoonotic um, diseases focused on the vertebrate um, side of that those interactions. Um, but then the other major project we do, and part of the reason we're doing all this traveling, is to work on the house sparrow, which is one of the most broadly distributed species in the world. And so the project is to see if we can figure out at the sort of molecular level, especially with regard to DNA methylation, how that might be influencing its ability to turn up and down and off and on genes and uh, give it a kind of plasticity that a lot of invaders have when they succeed in new places. So that's what the travel is about. We've, we're in Senegal and Vietnam and Australia, New Zealand, Spain. We're going to the Netherlands. I mean, the species is literally everywhere. And uh, this NSF grant we've had for a few years is taking us around the world to do sampling and such. Okay, which just shows it was a mistake of me to to do computational work. <laughs> so no, I have no excuse. It depends on how much you like airplanes, but yeah. that uh, I, I think Marty needs some field help, so I might, I might volunteer. <laughs> Yeah, you can really see the world doing science, right? Even if you don't do field work, just going to conferences. I think it's one of the great privileges of being a scientist is that you, you're all over. Yeah, although in, in Germany, at least, uh, there's a lot of discussions these days about intercontinental flights and CO2 and stuff like that. So That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, our carbon footprints are not anything to be proud of. No, exactly. Exactly. So have you guys stopped going to, to distant conferences because of this? Or are you trying to do science more locally? Maybe I cut down a little bit on that, but not totally stopped. You know, I remember when the, the world shut down in March, April 2020, we were all reflecting and we were all talking. Oh, you know, that was so crazy how we did things. We would just go to like LA for one night and then come back. That was crazy. You know, if we ever do get back to normal, I'm going to really do things right. I'm going to, if I go to a conference, like, would it kill me to go for the entire conference instead of like just a one hour window when I'm speaking? Would it, would it kill me to just like really settle and, and get to know a place and make the travel at least worth the, the carbon footprint? And then now it's, it's back to normal and I'm doing the same old things I did before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but there are, there are more zoom, zoom yeah. stuff. So what's your experience of that? Because, you know, I, I love, let me gush a little bit over your podcast. I love what you guys are trying to do. And I especially love the, you know, the emphasis on where does the creativity come from? In the context of what we're talking about, do you feel that the Zoom flavor of conferences provides the same thing as the in-person version? I, I get so much inspiration and so many ideas not necessarily from seeing the talks. I mean, you know, you know how this goes. The longer you do science, the more value comes from just being in the places and having those hallway or bar conversations with colleagues. I mean, that that dimension of creativity or how much creativity comes from those experiences is, is really fantastic and, and hard to replace. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I've, I've tried a few online conferences and they're not for me. They're not for me. I, I can't I can't really focus. And 
like you're saying, the most important interactions you have at the coffee break or when you go out to have dinner with colleagues in the evening. And these online things, they try to replicate that in some way, to emulate that in some way. And I tried that and I was in this in this meeting place and there was just one other random person and we didn't have anything to say to each other. It was <laughs> it was so sad, right. seriously. <laughs> I think it's it's so it's so interesting to to ponder what is really the difference between uh, virtual versus in person, and I think it's it's that the in person gives you this kind of constraint where there's nowhere to hide. You know, like you're, you're sitting in a, a talk, and if you are not paying attention, then you know you're effectively being rude, and other people see that you're being rude, and so you don't want to come across as being rude. So you know that constrains you to pay attention, and then it turns out it's good for you to pay attention. <laughs> or when you're at the coffee break, like it's it it feels socially awkward to just stand by yourself. So you're like, okay, let's 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 see who, who are you, you know, and you talk to someone. Yeah, you have this constraint that you have to talk to someone. <laughs> Whereas in the virtual, you just you just tune out, right? It's very easy to tune out. Yeah. So have you guys done very many live interviews of, of guests? And, and I say this because Marty and I at some conferences over the past few years have just lined people up and we, you know, we sit down in a hotel room or a hotel lobby and talk for an hour or two and record the conversation. And honestly, those have been some of my my most favorite conversations because they're they're free flowing in a way that doing this over the web is not. And like, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with this, right? We're doing it right now and it's great. And there's no other way we could possibly do this, but there's just something about the flow of the conversation in person. That's really, really lovely. Yeah. We, we haven't tried that actually. We should. Yeah, we should try it. I heard the episode you guys did with Joel Brown at a conference and yeah, I love Joel. So I, I really uh, appreciated that episode. Thank you for that. Yeah, that was, that awesome. was an early one too. You're, you're being generous too that we did that at a conference that was at a bar um, here in Tampa. <laughs> Even better. Yeah, it's, it was fantastic. Um, just sitting and talking squirrel ecology and cancer with a beer. It was uh, <laughs> a unique thing. I don't know that I'll ever do that again. It was it was a lot of fun. I, I think um, one advantage of doing it this way, the way we are recording this in different places and only using audio is that we actually... You know, it's, it's not ideal for something. There's definitely not as much energy, you know, as you mentioned, art. But there is an advantage where we don't have to worry about our looks. You know, we don't have to worry about any any kind of like silly things uh, I may be wearing or, or um, you know, we could actually concentrate on the content. So there's, there's advantages in there. That's too. true. That's true. Yeah. We, we typically use video and audio when we interview our guests, but we don't we don't publish the video but I, I kind of like this, like not being able to see each other and just just paying attention to the words. I, I, I was actually thinking the exact opposite that maybe Itai and oh. I should, try, <laughs> you know, that maybe we should try out how it works with with video. So, uh, like you say, so we can see body language. Well, you, you know, let me tell you a, a secret about how we do things, and it, it might explain why we. we... No, no, don't, don't don't spill it. <laughs> yeah, let's look no, behind the curtain. <laughs> uh, the reason why we don't do video is because as we're talking to our guest, Martin and I are actually communicating quite intensely on a Google Doc where we're, we're really trying to figure out what's, you know, where to take this. Like we're, we're kind of driving it without the, the guests seeing this. But we found that we need to do this because before we did that, we would always uh, jump in and we couldn't coordinate. And, and it was like, you know, is it my turn to do a question? What, you know, what's, what's happening now? And, and so this allowed us to coordinate. How do you guys do it? Yeah. 
That's funny. Art, do you want to tell him? <laughs> uh, we do exactly the same thing, oh. but with video. <laughs> with the video? So, well, so so we always, no, no, I mean, we have a Google Doc open and, and we, you know, we've written out what we think is the sequence of things that we're going to ask our guests. And then, of course, theory meets reality and the conversation goes in some direction we don't expect. But we use the Google Doc to sort of sequence, like, who's going to jump in next or what topic we're going to go to. But we just we just pre-warn our guests that, you know, you may see us typing or, you know, our eyes glaze over. And that's because we're trying to figure out what to do next. You know, don't don't worry about it. But but maybe it's better not. Maybe it's better to hide that. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because I think I, I, I thought it would be distracting for the yeah, guests. It could be. Yeah, we're even careful to try for them not to hear us type. Right. Yeah, you don't want them to think you're like like just responding to emails while you're talking to them. Right, right. right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I don't have the multitasking capability to do anyway, but I think some people may try. And I think it I think it helps to have two of us doing this because you know there's always diluted concentration because one of us is paying attention to what the other person is writing, but presumably the other person at that time is leading the conversation. There's only been one time in the past we're getting close to 100 episodes, and there's only been once in the past that we've done a solo episode. Some art I don't remember what the history was, but Eric Jarvis, if you guys know him, he's a neuroscientist. So you could make that one. It was like a last minute thing. We'd already postponed with Eric once. And so I just decided to do it. But um, even though I didn't have to type to anybody, it was so much more um, difficult to just progress the show because I, I, you know, it didn't really have that bandwidth to be able to think about where I was going. I just had to sort of live in the moment and, you know, hopefully keep things going with Eric. So it, it actually, I don't know, I, I think it kind of helps to distribute that attention in strange ways sometimes. Yeah, I think that there probably is a reason why a lot of podcasts have, have two hosts. Interesting. Uh, Art and Marty, you guys didn't tell us how you two met. Um, do you remember when that first was, Art? I'm not sure. I mean, we've, we've known each other for probably 20 years because we work in, in sort of vaguely the same field and we've been going to one of the same meetings for a long time. But but you, you, you tell them the origin story, Marty, for the podcast. Yeah, the origin story of the podcast. I mean, that, that one's a little bit more straightforward. Art and I had, let's see, we had edited a book together. I don't remember, like he said, how we first got together, but we edited a, a book together, sort of like an expanded special issue of a journal. And we got to know each other's thinking there. I was asked by the society he was talking about to be editor of their journal. And I recruited Art and um, our, our new guest, our new host that um, you guys may have seen, a, a mutual friend named Cameron Gallenbor. Anyway, so, th- so those guys were, were editors on the journals. We did that for a little while. And then I um, invited Art down here to give a seminar and took him out for a beer. Um, I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts and started to get very excited about them. And after two or three beers, he was convincible that we should start <laughs> we should start our own i think definitely not after one beer it took like two or three well, it took a th- yeah and you hadn't at that point even listened to a lot of podcasts right no yeah no so you just jumped right in such a friendly guy you know frankly the idea seemed just crazy so <laughs> and we also got lucky because um so I, I came back to montana and there just happened to be a student journalist that was uh, attending my lab meetings and interfacing with people in my lab. And I, I, I mentioned to him this idea of maybe trying to do a podcast. And, and he said, oh, that sounds awesome. I'd be happy to maybe produce a couple of shows for you guys just to, just to see how it goes. So we had somebody just in-house right away who had the technical expertise to be able to do the audio, audio parts of it, which is great. Yeah, that's that's really cool. It's it's interesting to me that it just took like two or three beers to uh, <laughs> to, to to convince uh, each other to do the podcast together. Because in our case, it uh, it took Itai 
quite a bit more than two or three beers to convince me, I have to say. It took like six months. Six, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah like... <laughs> Like he had this crazy idea. He had this crazy idea to do a podcast. And I said, oh, no, nah, come on, come on. We have too many other things. <laughs> but I have to say, I find it a lot easier to just record audio because the original idea was that we would uh, also record video and also put that out on, on YouTube. Oh, yeah. It might have been that that's how I convinced you, Mar. I said, it's just audio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that just seemed too stressful to me like just to always be focused and you know look at the camera and then think and have your your game face on yeah 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 too too much multitasking for my taste so so itai how did it how did it come to be i mean what what was the what were the series of arguments that you you gave to martin and, and what was your original inspiration so for us the podcast is really an extension of the whole night science concept that we're trying to to promote for us it's kind of like this, you know, this notion that in graduate training and in the way we we become scientists, we're never actually taught how to do science. You know, what we're taught is just this this fantasy, right? The scientific method. No, no, come on, come on. I wouldn't say it's a fantasy. It's 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 only half of the story, right? We're taught half of the story, and the other half is, you know, it just doesn't exist. Like nobody talks about it. It's this big secret. Yeah, and we each have to pick it up. Uh, on our own, we each have to learn the tricks of the, of the trade on our own, and there has to be a more efficient way of teaching people how science is actually done. So, so that's that was our our goal with the whole night science project is is that in the same way that there is a scientific method, okay, it's not a fantasy, but it it all assumes that you already have the hypothesis, right? What we wanted to do is to talk about what is the process of how you get to the hypothesis. And so we uh, managed to convince uh, the editor of Genome Biology at the time, Barbara Schaefer, to allow us to, to get a, a um, series of editorials. And we just were amazed at how like, we could just do whatever we wanted with those, with those pieces. We, we published a dialogue between the two of us. We, we published, uh, we talked about Bob Dylan. We published <laughs> New Yorker cartoons uh, one time. We did, we did crazy things. And, um, and it was going well, but I realized that, that like, there was one problem that was just glaring, which it's just the two of us. And we really wanted to, to bring in more people to ask uh, them, like, what's their process? And the idea was the podcast is our research the podcast is the, the research we're doing for what is the creative process. It's not just what works for us, but what works for others. And so we thought we would do like 100 episodes. And and uh, right now, what are we up to, Martin? Like 30? Yeah, something on that order, yes. But, but Itai, that's how it started out, I think, in some way, right? That we thought, you know, it's not enough if we just think about our own experiences. We need to talk to a lot of other really creative scientists. And the podcast seemed to be the right frame for that. But I think... By now, it's developed into much more than just a resource for writing more pieces for, for a journal. Because, you know, what we didn't, what at least I didn't realize at the time is that a lot of, especially the young people, like people who do PhDs right now, they're much more likely to listen to a podcast and to read editorials in some journal, right? So, so we felt that we could transport that message, right? you know how important creativity is and that they're really tools for doing that for being creative that we could transport that message much better much better with a podcast at least to some people than with just writing about it so has that was that or has that become your target audience 
are you are you mostly appealing to graduate students and postdocs, or do do you have a, a different target in mind? Well, that's a good question for you guys. Like, how do you, how do you guys know who your audience is? I mean, we just put something into the stratosphere or the, the the interweb. We just put it there. How do how do you guys know who consumes it? Age old question. <laughs> <laughs> there are a bunch of places that claim to compile meaningful statistics of that sort. Um, it's questionable. We continue to to worry that we're we're finding meaningful data. But we started with the hope that, you know, we would attract the people that listen to Richard Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and watch Attenborough specials, you know, but wanted to know more of the biology that wouldn't show up on those shows or deeper biology that, you know, hasn't typically been covered. But I think the truth has become that graduate students and postdocs, I mean, are something on the order of, what would you say, are 70 to 75% of our listeners? And in the last few years, in sort of, you know, trying to look at, at meaningful statistics, we sort of just embraced that and adjusted the guests that we host, the topics that we cover, the, our style to really, you know, lean into the people that, that seem to be paying the most attention. There, there was a moment a couple of years ago when we were having some existential angst about this and trying to think of ways to grow the audience and the total listenership. And it, it felt like it was almost a fork in the road between making it less nerdy and less deep and sort of more approachable to a broader swath of potential listeners or to lean into this going and doing deep dives into particular biological topics. And we just decided that we had to do the deep dives, even though we want, you know, we want more listeners, obviously. The reality is we're pretty nerdy and our guests are pretty nerdy and we have nerdy conversations. And like that has a niche appeal at some level. Well, and one of the surprising things too, and I'd love to hear if this is similar for you guys, you know, you, you're talking to people from different backgrounds. And so the, the way that they're going to, to just pitch their approach to creativity is going to vary. It's almost always been the case that the conceptually hairiest, often jargon full conversations are our most popular. Really? Yeah, I know. Strange, right? <laughs> yeah. so, our, so this producer that, that Art was telling you about a little while ago. This is Matt Blois. Yeah, Matt was sure that people wouldn't love to listen to this. And after six months of getting the data, over and over and over again, the episodes that you know Art and I would spend so long preparing for, and, and you know we would have to talk to each other about what does this mean, and you know here's what I think it is, so we should probably tackle it this way. I'm not sure we're going to be able to convey that to an audience. How are we going to tackle that? Maybe we skip it. Like all this planning, and then all of this sort of you know, going through the conversation to A, pull out the parts that are, you know, we perceive to be the most exciting, but we always try to, and especially when Matt was was part of the show, we always tried to distill down what is the core message or what are the main things that with all of this complexity and all this, you know, potentially novel things to so many listeners, what's a few things that we can get through? And so these little introductions we do, and sometimes they can take enormously long times to prepare. And so the ones that we had to invest all that time into invariably end up being the most popular. So, so do you think that's because uh, because you invested so much time, so they were just better because of that? Or do you think it's because your audience is such that they just enjoy hearing about complex things? Yeah, I think it, it's both. I mean, I it, it must be the case. We've, we've been talking about this a little bit um, recently about you know our, our, our production scheme. But I, but I do, it does seem to be that the audience likes it. We, we tend to get more engagement, you know, through Twitter or whatever it might be about the same episodes. So people are asking questions, following up, downloading show notes, that kind of thing. Here's, here's a, a third hypothesis, which is that maybe we get above average numbers of listeners for those episodes because 
people recognize that these what what these guests are doing is important. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. It's hard to sit down and read a, a set of their papers. And maybe you know, here's a podcast episode that provides an entree into mm. into that world. That, I mean, there could be something about that too. I think also a, a fourth hypothesis, if you will, is that as you're doing as you're doing these episodes where uh, you feel maybe it's a bit more nerdy, you're perhaps like at your most genuine. And, yeah. And the audience, oh, that's a good, that's good. You know, I, I think, I think the, the audience, you know, we're all equipped with like a, a natural bullshit detector. And we, we all know when someone is talking and they, they don't really mean it. They don't, they're not really into it, but perhaps like with these episodes that are, are maybe becoming more popular, it's just that you're, you're really tapping into what you guys really care about, what you really want. And, it doesn't matter that it's nerdy. The people could just feel that it's genuine and, and it's engaging to them. They'll recommend it to their friends. Yeah. Yeah. There've been a few episodes that we've done that Art and I, as soon as the topic is is, is chosen and the, and the guest is identified, we'll talk to each other like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do here? Neither one of us knows anything about this area. Those, those again, those end up being the best ones because like you say, we, we're approaching it with a curiosity and, and the conversation isn't as scripted, right? It's just sort of responding to things almost in real time. Um, I think we both had Yuri alone on and, you know, his emphasis on improv. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I right. had, until he articulated, I never appreciated how valuable that is for, you know, all sorts of things in the science context, but um, definitely for, for podcasts, just that putting yourself in the place of getting to be curious makes a big difference. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is something that several people who were on, on our podcast have mentioned how fascinating and often very successful it can be to move into a field where you really start with knowing nothing, like not sticking with what you've done for the last 20 years, but, you know, taking something that you know, right, like some technique or whatever, taking something that you know and bring it into a new field. And the curiosity, like you were saying, right, and the fascination with all this, these novel things that you hadn't heard of before, that's, that's a great driver for not, not only for a good podcast, but also for doing good science. Yeah. Was it, was it Tufty that, that you guys had on not too long ago? Yeah. Yes. You yes. had him on, correct? And he, and he mentioned, Art, I don't think you've heard this before, but we- Vacation eyes. Vacation eyes. Yeah. Oh my yes. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I so much love that. Have you heard that one, Art? I don't think I mentioned that to you. No, That's no, brilliant. No. Tell That's me. so brilliant. Well, you guys, you hosted him. Maybe, Itai, do you want to explain? Yeah. You know, so, so Tufty, he talks about this concept of vacation eyes in his latest book, where it's, uh, you know, when you travel somewhere- uh, I don't know, let's say you get to uh, Tampa Bay and you're just, you know, you're from New York City. So everything is new for you. And like, you just look at everything and you're like, oh my God, you, know, you could pick up on all these details where anyone else who's just living there, they don't see that anymore. It's, it's all invisible to them. But because you're not from there, it sticks out for you. So he says that when you, you know, approach a problem, try to come at, at it with vacation eyes and observe everything. Yeah, and, and even even if you, I mean, don't let people explain to you what everything means at first. Just look at everything, and then afterwards you can get the explanations. But first, just get an impression of what's going on. Huh. Yeah, that's great. I, I was going to say just one other thing about differences among guests that seem to make a big difference to the way the, the podcast feels in the end, and that is how conversational the guests are versus, you know, I'm sure you guys have had some guests on where you ask them a question 
and they switch into professor mode and give you a, a lecture for five or 10 minutes. And <laughs> absolutely. It, it's just yeah. so funny. We, we, we really, really love the ones where it's just conversational, like exactly like we're doing right now, right? We're trading things back and forth. People are saying their thing and then they're being quiet or talking over each other as it, as it sometimes happens. <laughs> um, but like that has a much more fluid feel to it than just listening to little mini lectures. And, and it's funny, like we, we always try to prep our guests, like, Hey, we really want this to be a conversation, but some people hear that and can't actually do it. Uh, so how, how do you deal with those different types of guests? Well, I mean, we have exactly the same experience, of course. And, <laughs> and we, we also, you know, like we sent them an email ahead of time with some sample questions and we say, we really want this to be a conversation. And, and you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. But, you know, honestly, I don't really feel that we have a good solution for that. Like, you know, sometimes people just go on and on and you you would like to you know, to ask a question like about what they just said, but yeah. they just don't give you yeah. space. In order to, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it happens, right? So, well, I think it's, it stems from the awkwardness of the situation for the, for the guests, you know, think about it from their perspective. It's super hard. They, they, they don't have a Google doc of like a secret communication, you know, they're just out there on their own. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's kind of like an adaptive response on the part of the guest to, to just uh, fall into professor mode. Revert to what they know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how, how do you deal with, with that situation? Well, I mean, honestly, not that well. I mean, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. We, we, always, we always say, okay, this time we're not going to let them do that. You know, we're going we're gonna to break in. We're going to like really make sure. And we do some warm-up questions at the beginning where we try to force it to be conversational. But that only works to an extent... And, you know, I, I think, I think you're right. I think some people just feel more comfortable, like talking about the things that they know and, and they're on stage and they feel stressed and they know this is being recorded. So for all time, and, and they want to just keep talking about the things that they know about instead of relaxing into the conversation. Do you guys edit uh, or not so much? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, these days tends to be sound production, just blips and, you know, uh, sirens and things in the background, that, that kind. So for the most part, it's what, 90% of the conversation? Does that seem reasonable, Art? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to edit a conversation so that it sounds conversational when it wasn't in real time. Right. You know, and I think the lesson that we've learned on this, you know, sort of how do you how do you get someone who's, as, as you say, stressed and concerned and aware that this is a performance, but try not to make it one. Um, we try to do that as much as we can upstream in terms of the invitations. You know, there's no, no limit to the biology universe and the topics that we can cover. So before we put out an invitation, we check YouTube and we check other things to see how, how people do those kinds of things. And, you know, Art and I've been doing this long enough that oftentimes we're inviting people that we know or have, have seen, you know, firsthand. So um, that, that, that works a lot of times, but then there's some, you know, hot topic that we know we need to cover and we really don't know that area. Um, we will go ahead and take the chance and try to make the best of it. Mm. I, I want to ask you guys uh, a question actually about the length of your podcast, because yours is a little bit longer than ours, probably like twofold. Uh, you know, you, we tend to be about 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and yours is like an hour or 20. But uh, both of us uh, are, are dwarfed by other podcasts like, you know, Lex Friedman like, <laughs> or, or like Huberman, right? What, what do you, 
what do you guys think about that? Did you, did it ever occur to you to do a three hour interview? With <laughs> no, it sounds so exhausting. No, right? by ninety minutes, Art and I are writing to each other like, "Please make this stop. I, my brain doesn't work anymore." So <laughs> we, we aren't that capable. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to sustain that. It is. It really is. But but there's a casualness in what Lex does. I mean, I, I respect that a lot. I was listening to one a couple of weeks ago, and it must have taken over an hour before they even first mentioned whatever the title, whatever the summary of the podcast was supposed to be. So, you know, ours is scripted in a sense that we have an idea of what we want to cover. We, we try not to, you know, walk right through all the bullet points or anything, but, but we kind of set it up from the start that it, it can't really go any longer than 70 minutes. And then if the conversation is going really well or, or particular topic we love, then we'll, we'll push it. I, I was going to ask how much editing you guys do and how much compression well, I think we do slightly more than you, but one reason could be that we feel that we can't really script a lot ahead of time because, you know, we're talking with our guests about things that are totally unpublished, right? That probably they've never talked about before in public. Like, where did they get their ideas? Like, what do they do if they, if they have a problem that they don't know how to solve? Like, who do they talk to and how do they talk to people? You know, and it's different for every person, right? So... It's very hard for us to know ahead of time for a specific guest what kind of questions we should ask them. And so it's a lot more exploration. It's a lot more improvisation what we do in our podcast, I, I feel. And, you know, of course, there's always dead ends that we get into. And then, you know, we might cut out like a whole paragraph or a couple of questions that we think are not leading anywhere in the end because it's so unpredictable. Yeah, it's really like that, that we... Um... We, we like to open it up with uh, what we call between ourselves the opening monologue, <laughs> where we ask the person, you know, overall, what's your approach to creativity? And then we, we really just take notes in our Google Doc. And like Martin is saying, from that point on, we're just trying to figure out what they just said. We're just exploring and we're, we really don't know where it's going to go. And it's, it's actually, I think by the end of the hour, we're exhausted. Yeah, it takes intense concentration, but that, that sounds really, really exciting and fresh to, to do it that way, you know, without too much pre-planning. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. So guys, how do, you, how do you pick the guests that come on your show? I mean, you can also draw from a vast universe. How do you make the choices of how your invites go out? Well, I was actually thinking about that when you were describing how you, you know, look at, I don't know, things people do on YouTube or, or somewhere else to get an idea of how it would be to talk to them. This is something that we don't really do. Um, for us, What how we select guests is we think about, you know, who do we think is really interesting in terms of their creativity? Like whose science do we think is exciting and new and and fresh? And so we try to really select those people where we think they might have something to say about creativity because they have shown that they are creative. But I also appreciate your approach. So, you know, this is something that we could use to complement how we select people that we also look for people who, who can talk about this. And to be clear, Martin, I mean, the first thing that we'll do is we pick topics. So Art and I do have fairly broad interests and the topic is always the priority. So if we can't find a guest that perfectly matches, especially if it's a narrow topic, the pool is going to be small. Um, we'll, we'll sort of go that way. But if it's if it's something that we know that we want to cover and there's someone that has done TED Talks or something on that, then you know that'll be the first person that we approach just because not only do they have an aptitude for it, presumably they have an interest in science communication because they've done that kind of thing before. One thing I... Uh really 
love about having a podcast is you could talk to your heroes, yeah. <laughs> right? Like you, you have this platform where it's, it's like you, you can pretend, oh, it's not me. It's not for me that I want to talk to Daniel Kahneman. It's, it's for the listeners. I'm doing it for the listeners. Have you managed to get on most of your heroes? Uh, we're getting there. I think we're, we've, we've had so many so far. It was, it was a dream to talk to, to Tufty because he was, uh, I read all his books and, and, uh, Uli is an old friend that it was great to have him because he's, you know, like Martin said, he's thought so much about creativity. Steven Strogatz, that was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great episode. Oh, yeah. thank you. Um, I had a question for you guys about dynamics of how you have changed as hosts over the course of doing, you know, your 30 plus episodes. So what what's changed for you? I think we just got into some kind of routine. Like at, at the beginning, you know, the, the conversations are still improvised in the sense that we don't really know ahead of time what we're going to talk about with our guest. Um, but initially, it was also very much improvised in how we interacted with each other and with the guest and, you know, who was going to ask when, what question. And and that sort of has become, I would even say, a bit more professional, right? So so now, like, we, we communicate much more systematically on, on the... Google Doc and, you know, we pretty much know who's going to ask the next question or if one of us thinks of, you know, I would like to ask a follow-up question here, then we communicate that. And so I think in terms of how we do it, it's become a lot more smooth, but that's that's sort of the only difference that I notice. And and how how is it for you? I mean, you've been doing it for quite a bit longer than us now. Well, I would, I would say... It's it's somewhat excruciating to go back and listen to old episodes because I, I can hear that we were unpracticed and it's it's hard to put a finger on what that is exactly, but it's a you know, it's a kind of stiffness to the way we were asking questions or interacting with our guests. And I, I would say for me personally, it feels like I've I've just kind of relaxed into the role in the sense that I know we can deal with whatever happens in the conversation and I've become a lot more comfortable just asking what I perceive to be the next obvious question. And sometimes those are like really, really dumb questions. Like, like I, I feel like I'm much more comfortable being the dumb guy. You, you are just, the master of that. Let me just say, I'll, I'll happily give you that compliment. <laughs> about being the dumb guy. Yeah. I've, I've really excelled at being the dumb guy. But, but what I mean by that is like, you know, just, just ask the next, the next obvious thing. And, and that, I don't know that that's made the whole thing a lot more fun because even when we're talking to people that are, you know, really at the top of their game or really intimidating in some way, it's just like, yeah, we're just having a conversation and I'm asking things that are of interest to me, but even if they're, they're basic and obvious, they're probably also questions that are occurring to our listeners. And mm -hmm. so just ask them. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What has the podcast done for your science? Has it changed your science as well? I, I think it, it has, it has been strange to observe that people actually listen to it it's it's um it's it's interesting because you know martin and i we put so much thought into our editorials we just for months months on end so much effort and then you know here like for one hour we'll talk to uh aviv regev and just the, the the disparity between how much effort goes into it's it's so but then everybody listens to the aviv regev podcast and, and we're just we're we're so um amused by kind of like what Martin was saying before that the the youth they love uh, the podcast and it's just so accessible to them so that I think maybe it hasn't you know changed anything about the content of my science but in terms of communications you know communicating ideas to people it, it does force you to 
become better at it. You think about what's the idea you're trying to communicate. And, and, and then, you know, just as an aside, it's also interesting to think that uh, when Martin and I are, are doing it together, there's an interesting dynamics where we, we, you know, we also do workshops where we talk about the creative process and we, we do like, we just a couple months ago, we did a two day workshop at Princeton. That was a, a lot of fun. And, and one thing that works about it is our dynamic of, I say something and then Martin says something. It's a conversation. It's, it's not a, a boring uh, monologue. And so I, I think that that aspect has also now been integrated into the way I give talks where it's, it's a, uh, more conversational and I feel more comfortable and, and having a discussion with that question and answer period. So I think in terms of science communication, it's, it's helped me a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that also from, from my side. Um, it hasn't really changed what topics I do in my research, for example, but it has changed the way I communicate science, I think. And it has also sharpened my eye for the creative process. You know, like Itai was, or like we were saying, We've been writing these editorials for quite a while, and we did that before we started with the podcast. So, of course, that also increased my focus, increased my understanding of this creative process. But hearing all those people in the podcast talk about their personal style of doing the creative process of science, that's really not only interesting, but I think it also influences how I have discussions with my students, for example. How is that for you? Like the podcast, did it change anything about your research? Well, definitely in the SciComm dimension. I mean, the same thing. I just gave a seminar last week and I, you know, in the middle of it, I realized, wow, I'm being a podcaster. I'm not getting the same scientific talk that I usually would. I'm, I'm talking in science voice. It's an actual conversation with the audience. But I think the science for me, it, it actually has changed. And I wonder if that's because, Itai, you said it in one of our email exchanges. Our podcast is about the results and yours is about the process. And that's very true. I think the breadth of things that I'm willing to take the risks to work on is changed. I mean, that's there's a, there's a bit of a downside there because I find myself being more collaborative than sometimes I'm comfortable with. I you know can't know and can't progress parts of the research because I don't I don't control it um, in the in the same kind of way. But it but it does give me an ability to sort of I don't know just think more broadly and. I guess the kind of research that Art and I do, and you guys can definitely relate, is is integrative biology, right? And so talking to people about the kinds of work that they do that's way out on the margins of, of what my expertise is supposed to be, it really does always pull me in that direction. I always sort of find myself thinking back to, like, we just talked about one of my favorite episodes with Carl Friston uh, about a year and a half ago or so. That conversation has profoundly changed the projects that my lab are doing right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that really resonates with me, Marty, what you just said, because for, for Martin and I, in each episode we do, I feel like we really learn so much from it. And we refer back constantly to, to what did Aviv say? What did uh, Barabashi say? And because it's all about the same topic of the creative process, we look at them as kind of like prophets that are coming to us. And each one has a has like a, a central message, like a gift that they impart. And I, I remember that what Barabashi said to us, I was thinking about it for days later, about how there's this fallacy of experts that you, you may tell your idea to an expert and they'll they'll see everything that's wrong about it because they're too close to it. They, they can't see what potential it has. They're just too close to it. So, so don't be discouraged if the expert doesn't like your idea. I think that was just profound for me. Yeah. So 
One question that uh, Itai likes to ask a lot lately is, <laughs> you know, what, what what do we really want? What do we really want? Like, so so we're curious. What do you really want with your with your podcast? Like, you know, you're doing this. You've been doing it for a while. Yeah. What do you really want? You have to do it in that voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Art, you wanted to be a model, right? Didn't you want to be a sponsor for some kind of perfume? I think you were, or maybe supported by Coke. I think that's what you talked about in the past. <laughs> Uh, I think you misheard, Marty. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what Marty says about this because I feel like this is really an ongoing question for us. And I, I think for me personally, the, the answer has evolved over the, the last few years into, I, I'd say, I'll, I'll give you the current answer, which is we want to just have fun talking to, you know, the broadest set of people that we can talk to in the most interesting way and simultaneously to to make the podcast sustainable <laughs> which which means <laughs> yeah and those are not necessarily aligned i mean they they are obviously at least partially aligned but you know we want to have a, a sort of big enough audience that we can keep this sustained and keep going for multiple years while also sort of very selfishly talking about the exact topics into the exact people that we want to talk to. And, and I'd say, you know, the other interesting idea that we've kicked around a lot, but really haven't successfully implemented yet is this idea of making the podcast a platform for actually hashing out modern controversies that we're interested in. So, you know, trying to get guests on with opposing points of view or, or panels to discuss some, some big topic that's, that's controversial and to actually make some progress on that topic in, in real time during the conversation. And honestly, we haven't really succeeded at that, I would say, Marty. It's just hard to get you know even one guest on. It's much harder to coordinate multiple guests. And I think especially if there's the possibility for some you know conflict and contention on on the show. But I, I love that idea. We haven't done it. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we, we try really hard not to host debates. We don't want we don't want a competition. We don't want that sort of grandstanding. We don't want that posturing. And um, it's just, it's really hard to do in this medium, even if we have video and, that, and those kinds of things. But I would say that, that, that the second part of what Art said, sustainability, that's an important one that he reminds me about all the time. <laughs> but yeah, using the podcast is this mechanism for people that devote so much effort and years and attention into these things. The sort of professional side of doing science has become... I don't know, unappealing in so many different ways. It feels like a podcast could be a platform and especially for students. It's a way maybe to make progress in the discipline while also appealing to the people that are going to carry that torch later. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You put your finger on something that really, really speaks to me. I think, you know, if you, if you look at Twitter and, and um, beyond, there's just so much negativity about academia right now. And it's, it's, I think it's getting to everybody. It's getting to students. And I do think that our two podcasts are helping. I agree with you that a debate may not work because for, for um, what we do with these podcasts is you really want the people to be open and, and genuine. And with a debate, yeah, they would kind of, uh, you know, they, they would feel threatened and all of that would come out. But I, I, I think one aspect of the Night Science podcast that I really like is so much of it feels like it's kind of therapy for us. You know, that, that 
like science is so hard. And, and when, when you listen to, I don't know, uh, Science Hour on the BBC or like the Science Magazine podcast or the Nature podcast or the Embo, it's all just like so flashy, like, oh, my God, you know, all these results and everything is so amazing. And, and no one talks about the real aspect of doing science, which is such a struggle. You know, there's so much failure. It's, it's psychologically so difficult. And, and so I really think that our, our podcast just tries to, to be genuine and real. Like this is the real process and um, it's fine to talk about it. It could be helpful. Yeah. In, in the list of questions, I know we're probably getting close to the, to the end of our time, guys. Um, but I want to just steal one of your questions, Itai, from the list that you sent us. What podcast do you guys listen to or have the specific version of the question I'd like to know the answer to? Were there any podcasts that were inspirational to you? I mean, that you sort of emulate or what, what was there one that inspired you to just go for this? For me, it has to be Radiolab. I love, love Radiolab. There's no way, I shouldn't say no way, but, but you know, the Night Science podcast is, is not like that. I, I wish it could be more like Radiolab, like so produced and there's, there's all the music and the, the different sides. It's, it's an amazing podcast. And, and, and I, I love to just tell people about the stuff I, I heard on Radiolab. So I think... One thing that inspired me was, wouldn't it be cool that if someone would listen to the Night Science podcast and they would want to just like run out and, and find someone they could talk to? Like, oh, did you hear what? Did you hear what? What Ellen Rothenberg said? Oh my God, it blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have to say for myself, before we started with the podcast, I wasn't actually a, a strong listener to podcasts at all. Maybe that was one of the reasons why it took Itai so long to convince me. So, so it was not that that I listened to something that inspired me. And, you know, what we're doing on our podcast is, is, I think, quite different from what most people are doing with our focus on the process. So I think more than a podcast, actually, what's inspirational for me is a book I read, which is called Songwriters on Songwriting, actually. So it's, it's, it's totally... Martin is always going on and on. About <laughs> yes, it. yes, yes, yes. No, and and, and they're, they're, they're actually doing for music or for songwriting what we're trying to do for science, right? So there's this guy who did all these interviews with amazing songwriters. Like, you know, you, you name it, they're in there. Yeah, Leonard Cohen, Paul Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they're, they're all there. And he doesn't ask them about their, their love life or, you know, how it is to be famous and successful. He's really only interested in the process. You know, like, how do they, how do they do it? Like, where do they get their ideas? And, you know, like, what are the techniques they use? And, and I found that so fascinating. And so, so I think that's more inspirational than any podcast for, for what we are trying to do yeah, for me. Super cool. Have you guys listened to the Song Exploder podcast? <laughs> I knew you were yeah, going to yeah. bring that up, Art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that. <laughs> How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm the podcast nut of the pair of us. You know, and everything we're talking about, I think this this sums up what my why I had the batch of podcasts that I, I always listen to. There's a there's an emphasis on the people, right? It's not just the results, it's not just the process, it's the individuals that are doing that. And I think I love Radio Lab as well, don't get me wrong. And they do some of that. But then a lot of the other, you know, sort of results oriented nature science podcasts that you you were talking about, they they often will leave out that dimension. And not just the, you know, what was your trajectory through to being a professor? But the details by which they came to produce, you know, whatever the data are that were, uh, that's a topic for the show. I think that, you know, Sam Harris does that incredibly well. His podcast is probably the one 
that has been most inspirational, got me going, got me interested in doing this in the first place. And then um, the way that he approaches a lot of things, not everything, but a lot of things, it sort of sits in the back of my head. But Sean Carroll does a great job with Mindscape. Um, Art and I have recently become big fans of Barry Weiss. And honestly, I mean, it's not science at all, but but she's quite good at, uh, at doing that. But yeah, it's just in general, these sort of bringing on people, talking about their individual steps to whatever kind of, of, of thing is, is the subject of what they're doing. I just, I just like that conversational style. And, and you could probably tell that I, I think I had maybe more of Martin's trajectory of um, not being a serious podcast listener until more recently. I, you know, I think like the longer we do our own podcast, the more other podcasts that I'm listening to. And, and of course I'm heavily influenced slash biased by, by Marty. Um, and, you know, I like, many of the same things that he listens to, you know, there's a few others that I, I also listen to like hidden brain. I don't know if you guys listen to that one. It's highly produced in the same way that, that radio lab, maybe not quite to the level of radio lab, but they're just super interesting conversations about the way the human brain works. And I, I really like that. Actually, I have a question for you guys with your colleagues, you know, your other faculty and other scientists in, in your field. Uh, do you think it is perceived that the fact that you guys have a podcast makes you less serious as scientists? Is it a liability or, or does it help? Or how does it influence the way you are perceived in, in your field? That's an interesting question. And, and I guess I don't know the answer to it. Uh, I think there's a chance of maybe being perceived as less serious. But we also, I think, tend to only hear from people who are enthusiastic about the, the podcast, right? And so there's maybe an element of self-selection there and the sorts of feedback, right? Nobody's going to say, you know, that's just super stupid that you do a, a podcast. We, we hear from people who are like really honestly enthusiastic about just the overall idea of the podcast or particular episodes they've listened to. So it's almost entirely positive feedback, but I guess I don't totally trust that. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? What do you think, Marty? No, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the one thing that I would say where I, I can I can trust it because there are dollars involved. Um, the dean of my college supports our podcast to an amazing degree. So you know, I told you guys I'm in a college of public health. So a podcast about biology, that's sort of, you know, we're only occasionally touching things that are relevant to the college. And yet she really strongly supports the podcast. The University of Montana has been very supportive. Most of what we do to pay our producers and interns is on um, NSF grants as part of the broader impacts. But but USF in particular, almost since the start, has been incredibly generous. I, I'm not sure that this would have been possible without this this dean's backing. I, I should Donna Peterson is her name. I should I should thank her for that. What What about you guys? What's your perception? Well, you know what you said about the dean. Um, we, we're not financially supported by my university but i know that they really appreciate um any kind of, of science communication so they're, they're very happy that um, we're doing this podcast but that's sort of the administration or the management of the university the colleagues i don't know itai what your experience is but you know when i'm at a conference and somebody comes up to me and says by the way i'm listening to your podcast i think it's really cool you know the kind of positive feedback that you were talking about it's usually students or young postdocs, right? It's rarely other professors that say that. You know, it may be because they don't have time to listen to podcasts, but I also suspect that, you know, it might be a bit more suspicious to these people, you know, like, you know, if, I mean, how can you be a serious scientist if you waste your time on stupid stuff like that? Yeah, but but I've also, I think I've, I've gotten over that and, you know, going back to something I think you said earlier, it has such a broader reach than most of the, 
the papers <laughs> that I, I write, right? Like, you know, I'm happy if a hundred people or a couple hundred sites on paper of mine, but like regularly multiple thousands of people download our, our episodes. And so what, what has a broader reach and what really matters more in the end? And, you know, I mean, there's, there's different strengths to these things, right? They matter in different ways, but it's just nice to be able to, to talk to a broader audience in my, my very small field. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's that's also one of the driving forces for us, I think, that, you know, we do our signs and we love our signs. It's, uh, we think it's it's really exciting. It's really cool what we do in terms of our signs. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a relatively small number of people who agree with that notion, right, who, who also find it fascinating. Um, and in terms of the impact that we, that we can have on science as a whole or on society as a whole, um, what we do with the podcast, I think, you know, has the potential to do much more and to last much longer than our specific research, right? Like there, we really have an agenda, like really, really want to change the world, right? Not just, you know, add something to the building of knowledge, but really change the way that graduate students are taught how to do science, right? So we have the ability here to do something that's much bigger than what we can do with our individual projects. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always thought about it as a, a hobby. You know, I have a, my day job, I'm a scientist, and then I have I have this night science hobby. It's it's cute. And that's what I, I keep telling myself. But, but actually, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, I said that to someone and they said, but, you know, Itai, it's not really a hobby. Like, you you really care about this. It's, it's more than a hobby. And, yeah, I think if I'm being honest, it's more than a hobby. It really, and I have to, I have to think about like, you know, to what degree should we go more into it? Yeah. Could it, could it grow to displace your day job? Yeah, it, it might, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny to say that because I've, I've been in science for so long, right? It's been like 25 years since I started grad school. So you know, science has been everything for me for as long as I, I can remember. And, now to think about like a new device, it's like it's scary, but also interesting. How about you? Do you think you're gonna do science communication full time at some point? Sorry, <laughs> Marty. <laughs> Drum roll. This is the point where Art says, "I'm done with big biology. I'm walking away." I mean, honestly, it's hard to imagine. It, it, you know, it's got a lot of appeal, right? I mean, it's super fun and. And yet it feels like it would be impossible to step away from the sort of more academic aspects of what I do. But I don't know. What, what do you think, Marty? Yeah, I, we, we have joked for, I think, since the beginning of getting an independent donor, Leonardo DiCaprio supporting <laughs> big biology. And then we have a research institute that's, uh, you know, half, half the time during the day we're doing our science and at night we're making the podcast. Um, I don't think that at this point in my career, I can walk away from the science. I really like the stuff that I'm, I'm doing now. And I guess I don't see that excitement dissipating for, you know, at least seven to 10 years. Um, but at the same time, I, I couldn't envision giving this up either. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I think what I'm trying to do is, is interweave them to the extent that they can be. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think I could give up either one of them at this point. This has been super interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, this has been great, guys. Yeah. You guys are really fun to talk to. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the episode. If you like what you hear, let us know on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, tell us that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thank you as well to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Keating Shimeri produces the fantastic cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello.